Sustainability Unwrapped, a conversational podcast about responsibility, ethics, inequalities, climate change, and other challenges of our times, where science meets practice to think about our world and how to make our society more sustainable one podcast at a time. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to this podcast from the Hunken series, Sustainability Unwrapped. My name is Martin Fougère. I'm an associate professor in management and politics at Hanken, and I will host this podcast uh, on the topic of political polarizations of sustainability. I will discuss these issues, which I believe are very important and often not so discussed, uh, with two expert guests. Um, Hanna Lempinen, uh, who is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Forest Sciences at the University of Helsinki, but is calling us today from the Arctic Center, University of Lapland, Rovaniemi, where she's a visiting research fellow. Uh, welcome, Hanna. Uh, thank you. And uh, the second guest will be Heikki Sirbjö, who is a postdoctoral researcher in geography at the University of Helsinki, and who is with us in the studio here. Welcome, Heikki. Thank you. A couple of observations uh, to introduce this podcast. Uh, The first observation uh, is that we are witnessing uh, what I would call an increasingly geographical division of politics in many of the rich countries of of Europe and North America, especially um, between, on the one hand, the so-called liberal metropolitan centers, uh, and then on the other, the supposedly increasingly illiberal, as it's often called, uh, rural peripheries. Uh, so we can see this, uh, to take an example, in the in the recent uh, US elections, uh, uh, both between states, between more rural states and urban uh, states, and also within uh, states. So for example, in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, we could see that the large urban centers of those states uh, voted disproportionately for, for Biden and the Democrats, and uh, conversely, the, the more rural areas in, in those same states uh, voted disproportionately for, for Trump. But we can also, of course, uh, see this with the recent success of various populist movements in the European countries, although these populist movements took different faces in different countries, it is, of course, a trend that has been noted, and very often the large urban centers uh, vote uh, disproportionately more for, for liberal ca- candidates than for populist candidates. A second observation following for the, from the first one is that part of, the, of this dividing line uh, in these polarizations uh, has to do with sustainability policies, uh, with the way that sustainability policies are largely supported by the liberal populations of the urban centers and on the other hand largely resisted by many people in more rural areas. Uh, So one example here could be the Gilets Jaunes movement uh, in France uh, or the Yellow Vest movement which started initially as a reaction against the carbon tax so against rising taxes on petrol and and diesel leading to um, more costly lifestyle for for those people who have to rely a lot on 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 car um, for their mobility and sometimes for for their livelihood. 
Uh, if we go to the Finnish context, which we, we will focus on more in this uh, podcast, uh, we can note that, for example, the Green Party gets very good scores in the largest cities, uh, but not so good scores in, in, in rural areas, typically. Uh, and another thing we could note uh, more, uh, about more recent uh, trends is also that the populist party, Perusuo Malaiset, uh, in English, True Finns, has come to define itself as some sort of Vihreiden uh, Vastinpari, meaning uh, a sort of antithesis of the Greens, a sort of uh, absolute opposite of the Greens. Uh, so it would seem that the liberal versus illiberal uh, polarization uh, mentioned in the first observation uh, might also be, uh, to some extent, a green versus ungreen uh, polarization. But perhaps it is also more complicated than this, and perhaps we might have uh, different shades of green or different ways of caring for sustainability in different places. Well, I believe the two guests we have today uh, have a lot to say about this. And uh, uh, what is particularly interesting, I think, with both of them, beyond their, their academic expertise, uh, is that they have affiliations both in the Metropolitan University of Helsinki, uh, while at the same time, they both keep very strong connections to northern peripheries uh, in Finland. So my first question to both of you is, what role do you think sustainability policies play in accentuating political division in Finland? So Hanna, would you like to start? Uh, yes, uh, thank you for the introduction to the topic. And um, thank you also for this question, which is kind of a big question to start with. And I think it's very dif difficult to... Um, give uh, an answer that would apply in terms of all different contexts that relate to sustainability. But if you try to sum the whole thing up, I would say that the sustainability policies do play a role. And kind of the answer to the question of what kind of role they play, I think it depends uh, from on the perspective, on the geographical location, but also on the time frame. And um, the time frame uh, within which these um, uh, questions are addressed. And uh, for example, when we're looking at long-term sustainability policies or sustainability policies aimed at uh, aimed towards reaching certain kind of long-term long goals, such as into context of climate change, it's this, uh, of course, the end result or the end result that we're aiming at is for the benefit of all of us. But the ways in which the impacts well, both in terms of benefits and harms and losses, how they're allocated now in the shorter, shorter term. I think that's what that is what has the potential of accentuating these divisions. Many thanks, Hanna. So yes, there is this clash between the end of the month and the end of the world, in a sense. Uh, that's what, for example, the Gilets Jaunes talked about. You know that mm. they are concerned about finishing the months with their with their resources and and. And at the same time, of course, there's this concern with climate change, which is a, an existential concern for, for mankind and so on, or for the, for the planet, perhaps even. Uh, Heike, would you like to comment on this first question? Yes, thank you. <clears throat> well, I think the hard part of the question uh, is the variety of different opinions regarding the sustainability policies in different contexts. But uh, I can, I, I, I think I can, Mm. identify the political dynamic 
regarding these polarizations. So <clears throat> the sustainability policies have been politicized along with a wide range of other issues in the process of political polarization taking place in democracies. First of all, uh, if we identify those political forces that have taken the initiative in environmental issues as Greens, they have successfully politicized the environment and made it an issue on the political agenda since at least the 1980s. Uh, this means that every political actor nowadays has to articulate some kind of environmental policy and be prepared to deal with environmental issues while, while doing politics. And what has been happening lately is that uh, the so-called nationalist populist parties have found a way of mastering political support by challenging the sustainability policies as articulated by the Greens. And during the last parliamentary election, the Perussuomalaiset successfully politicized the ambitious environmental policies as climate panic, uh, thus setting the terms of the debate for other parties. And the consequence of this was that also other parties took a step back from articulating ambitious climate measures, and this furthered the polarization between political right of centre and left of centre, and the environmental issues got framed as part of the so-called red-green red agenda. So, the reason why it is so easy to gain political support by criticizing sustainability policies is to my mind at least twofold. First, I would say that the processes and prospects that make the sustainability policies necessary are horrifying. Yet they are not acutely felt at the moment because the majority of people in Finland and comparable contexts are rather well sheltered by functioning infrastructures. Still, the prospects of climate change incent discomfort and fear. And given a choice, like in democratic politics, between a policy that says we should radically alter our mundane practices at significant cost, and a policy that states that we can hold on to what we know, preserve our economic interest and do nothing, the chances are that the latter prevails at least until the ensuing crisis makes it utterly implausible. Thanks, Heikki, for this very interesting uh, perspective that complements also Hanna's uh, very interesting perspective on, on the question uh, in the Finnish context. Um, so there's uh, this question of the opportunism of the, the party, the Perusomala, I said uh, in this particular case is, is very important in Finland to perhaps uh, accentuate this polarization. But my my next question, uh, which relate to the question of, of, of peat energy politics, uh, might also talk about a much older um, division within Finnish politics, uh, which might relate to other parties than the than the Perusomal, I said. Uh, so, um, so moving on to this question of peat energy that Hanna has, has studied uh, more specifically and already for for quite some time um, so hanna why why is the question of peat energy such an important political issue in finland and how does it relate to sustainability mm, it 
it relates to sustainability in many ways. And I think it partly also highlights what Heike was just saying about this one, uh, because now up until this point, we have kind of implicitly been talking about sustainability as an issue of environment and climate during this post podcast. But if you kind of go back uh, in terms of the discussion that focuses on sustainability. It's not sustainability is of course not only an environmental concern or a climate concern. It's a social concern, societal concern, and it's also an economic concern. And I think this is why peat energy, which I have been studying for uh, quite a while, and my background is, uh, or I, pro I approach this issue from the perspective of uh, social scientific energy research, where we're looking at energy, not kind of solely as a for like not solely as energy or as an energy source but instead from the perspective of how energy relates to the broader society and societal functions and i think when we're looking at peat uh, many it's a very good example of sustainability dilemmas in the sense that it's a question that looks very different from the perspective of different actors and from the, from different levels, where we're to, whether we're talking about the local scale or the national scale or the broader global scale. And it's also a question where different sustainability perspectives clash, because when we're looking at the economic impacts, uh, it's been traditionally considered as an important factor in our national economy. Uh, when we're looking at the so social or socio-economic factors, it's traditionally been an important uh, source of employment, uh, especially in areas that are otherwise already plagued by high unemployment rates. But then again, uh, it, its environmental impacts are detrimental. Uh, we're looking at the local um, impacts on ecosystems, on marshlands. Uh, we're looking at the impacts on waterways, local water damages. And then most recently, this whole question of uh, climate change, which really has been introduced to the national peak debate only in during the uh, 21st century, since the beginning of, beginning of 2000s, where we're not looking at peat anymore from the perspective of a national special concern or a local environmental concern, but instead of uh, as a part of this larger picture of combating climate change uh, globally. Yes, so so it it kind of uh, uh, shows the tensions between different different ways of thinking about sustainability, uh, sustainable livelihoods in a sense versus and also perhaps energy independence or or relative yes. uh, local energy production uh, versus uh, you know these these kind of climate change concerns and other uh, other environmental concerns uh, of the day, of course, which are which are really uh, uh, about alarming alarming processes to to. To the environment. I mean, uh, alarming impacts uh, on the environment. Um, why yes, why it, is it such an important political issue, though, in Finland? So, how does this translate into a political issue? Um, uh, there are also there are many answers to this question. Uh, one of them is kind of historical, in the sense that uh, peat marshlands and kind of clearing peatlands and forests for uh, for uh, clearing peatlands for industrial use and taking them to industrial use played an important part in the process of modernization of Finland. Um, it's also it, this whole kind of peat industry was a tool of uh, national 
politics in the sense of um, national developmental politics, especially in the rural areas. And uh, it's also an issue that, uh, as, uh, that in contemporary politics has created dividing lines between different political parties. And today, uh, well, historically, it's been kind of a, a dear issue for the center party of Finland. But I think in today's politics, the two Finns is the only party that absolutely supports continuing the use for energy production. But it's uh, national, if you think about why it's a political issue, so many different interests interests come into play in the context of it. We're talking about jobs, creating jobs. We're talking about uh, creating our, or making our own energy that we use, that we're talking about, we're talking about producing it here in Finland instead of uh, paying for it when we are importing energy. Uh, we are talking about, of course, uh, energy independence, reducing uh, dependence on imported energy sources. Um, we're talking about so many different aspects at once. That's in un unavoidably, inevitably a political issue. Yes, and a, and a highly multi-layered multi one, as, as mm. you're showing. Uh, Heikki, would you like to comment on, on this? Yeah, I think there's a strong symbolism in, in marshlands. Marshlands translated to poverty in Finnish imagination during dur during the time when when people depended on agrarian livelihoods. Marshlands were poor and cold and somehow during the modernization, uh, the idea developed that they have to be put to use. So I think this is one of the aspects that is for some people, it's very, very hard to let that go, so mm. to say. In energy terms, my impression is that uh, <clears throat> harvesting peat for energy production requires significant energy outputs, fossil energy outputs. Uh, and as such, you could make good arguments that it's not not very productive or, or very very beneficial given all the problems associated with it. But uh, one aspect is this strong symbolism and uh, actually in my mind it ties to the question of regional development mm. and the decline of rural areas. So uh, you in your introduction Martin you uh, talked about this liberal illiberal divide between uh, urban centers and, and rural areas. And uh, regarding the sustainability policies, I don't, I'm not sure if it's so much about uh, being liberal or ir illiberal, but uh, rather a demographic issue. The young and the educated well in cities, whereas rural areas are aging as part of their decline. And uh, this, this is a strong strong influence on the on the attitudes of people towards questions like this. And also the populist popul politics that question the need for ambitious sustainability policies gain support against the backdrop of wide and rather justified discontent in the rural areas. The relative rural decline that I mentioned is a result of complex combination of economic dynamics and public policies that, as a side note, needs to be studied and identified much more carefully. 
The main driver of this decline of smaller urban agglomerations and rural areas in Finland have been the neoliberal policy reforms and austerity politics that are designed to serve the dynamism of knowledge-intensive economy and, and con concentrate the development efforts and investment in major cities. The industrial and rural communities in Finland are dependent on livelihoods that are less productive than the ruling sector of the economy, and they are dealing with problems of financing public services for aging populations. When you introduce policy measures that challenge the livelihoods of the communities that already perceive themselves to be in a precarious situation or increase the cost of living, it is bound to raise discontent. And regarding the style of politics, if you do this uh, in an arrogant tone and with disregard to the concerns of the people, it feels anger, I would say. And this, I think, is the affective basis of the discontent which the populists have exploited very successfully, even if they have been unable to come up, come up with, with adequate explanation for this, for this decline, and also without explaining why the sustainability policies would not be necessary. Thanks, uh, Heike. Um, so Can I just quickly yes, please comment on what Heike said? I'm sorry, because it's exactly this historical and symbolic, the, the meaning that uh, Heike referred to as the symbolic meaning of Pete, and what I refer to as the historical role that Pete has, that's the only way kind of how to understand how it is such a big issue here. Because if we are looking at Pete energy, it employs directly only about a bit more than 1,000 people currently. Uh, peat contributes only to around 4% of our national energy consumption. And at, it's also its production is already subsidized to keep the kind of the system going. And at the same time, peat combustion, that we're burning peat for energy, it contributes to more than 10% of our annual greenhouse gas emissions. And it's a huge share of the greenhouse gas emissions that we, Finland could just wipe away by giving up peat production. Of course, it's, the question is not this simple because then we're when we are giving up peat, we are introducing something instead of it. And of course, this will also have climate impacts as well. But still, it's we're talking about a bit more than 1,000 direct jobs, about 2,500 altogether if you count in the indirect jobs, and more than only 4% of energy consumption and more than 10% of emissions. So against these numbers, it's really kind of, you have to have, a, you have to understand this symbolic and historical meaning in order to understand why it is an issue here. Exactly, uh, so so it's, um, these symbolic meanings uh, shouldn't be underestimated. And, and, and mm. as, uh, as Heike showed, uh, they can lead to anger when when there's a perceived arrogance of of the uh, you know the, the the policies that come from the center the liberal center so to speak again and uh, I think this of course this liberal versus illiberal um, uh, way of, of of framing things is itself of course a problem because I fully agree with Heike that. Uh, you know, being deemed illiberal itself can, could make people angry just just by itself. I mean, it's a way of disqualifying people. It's a way of 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 saying they are morally wrong as well. They are not part of this of this liberal society that values all kinds of of of, of good values of freedom and and so on and 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 nowadays sustainability. Uh, 
so so I think that's a key part of the problem, this perceived arrogance of of uh, forcing of telling people they are they are simply wrong and telling people who feel already marginalized in society for many reasons uh, that they are not just uh, um, you know uh, wrong because of certain indicators but also morally wrong uh, that's that's that makes it even worse perhaps and and leads to that to that uh, acute anger um, I mentioned earlier the notion that there might be different shades of green, and uh, I think uh, Heike, with his work on the Finnish approach to the bioeconomy, might have a lot to say about this. Uh, so, are there different shades of green in there, and how sustainable? And I put sustainable in in, in quotes here. Uh, how sustainable is this bioeconomy? Well, the hope in bioeconomy is that. Uh, there would be different shades of green. It would uh, would allow different kind of uh, development paths. And um, the bioeconomy holds a great potential, especially if we understand it as a transformative agenda and as a counterpart of fossil economy. And uh, to my mind, this potential has to do it, it could open up different development paths for industrial renewal or, and diverse rural economies and perhaps enable more decentralized infrastructure. In Finland, this initiative, however, has been seized by the mighty forest industry. And I'm afraid its grip is so strong that it's suffocating the bioeconomy. Uh, the content of the bioeconomy in Finland has been the intensification of the use of biomass. The discussion on the bioeconomy has been narrowed down to the question whether the forest resources should be utilized more or less and to what consequences. And I think the background for this discussion and for this situation is, is the restructuration of the forest industry itself. The paper production has been struggling now for almost two decades due to declining demand for paper, which used to be the most lucrative product for the industry. And this has been compensated by the increased demand for packing materials, which has reinvigorated the production of pulp. In this situation, the forest industry has been able to utilize its significant political influence for manipulating its operating conditions. The demand for pulp food has been high, yet its market price has remained relatively low. One factor contributing to this has been the active support by the state, especially through Metsähallitus, I think. And the industry has been supplied with vast amounts of pulp food, especially by intensive clear-cutting of forests on government lands in eastern and northern peripheries. At the same time, there have been very strong efforts to concentrate, financialize and professionalize the forest ownership, which has increased the value of forest land. And uh, I would say that as with the urbanization, this highlights the role of real estate values in geographical production of economic growth in the current situation. And um, in terms of its consequences, especially for regional development, this model of bioeconomy that, that has emerged in Finland is, is yeah, it is controversial. I think that especially new businesses based on new forest products could have great local importance and obviously the continuing operations and new investments by established actors are crucial for many regional economies. 
At the same time, the intensification of timber harvesting diminishes the possibilities of other forest-based economies, let alone its consequences for forest nature. The discussion and knowledge claims on forest issues are politicized to a degree, but the forest industry has been rather successful in monopolizing the vision on how the forest ought to be used, especially in rural areas, which in many ways are dependent on the current structures and practices. This, I think, holds, the back, holds back the development of bioeconomy and especially forms of bioeconomy that could most benefit the regional development in rural areas. All right, thank you, uh, Heikki. So, so here uh, we are seeing perhaps a more depoliticized uh, context. Bioeconomy, would you say that bioeconomy is a, is a device to, to somewhat depoliticize these, these, uh, these issues? Yeah, I would say it has been depoliticized in a way that uh, there isn't very much discussion on that. It has been politicized in the sense that it is an agenda for forest industry and those who do not approve dismiss the idea of bioeconomy altogether. Yes. So it is both politicized and depoliticized at the same time. It doesn't create discussion on, on what kind of content the bioeconomy could have. Yeah, and perhaps the rift that you can see in party politics when it comes to peat energy, for example, we, we don't see when it comes to the bioeconomy itself, because the bioeconomy is such a broad signifier that it might the Greens might be happy with with well with using it or 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 might be happy with it being out there and and the center party for example might also be happy about it uh yeah it has been very strongly associated with the center party and that has been problem for the development of of bioeconomy other other actors haven't really taken up the idea partly because because its strong association with with this particular political party and and a particular fraction of capital the forest industry many thanks heiki for all these clarifications uh hanna would you like to comment on the on the bioeconomy uh, yeah thanks heiki that was interesting and um, um of course i'm I, i'm familiar with the topic to some extent, and it still amazes me how this whole concept of bioeconomy has been, like you described, hijacked by the forest industry in the sense that it kind of equals the use of forest biomass. And uh, this kind of, um, it kind of uh, also exemplifies how different actors can, the content, the kind of, if, take the privilege to define what a certain field of industry means. And there's also this, it's, I think this whole term, when you're introducing bio to the economy, it's also quite difficult. It's kind of a, a rhetorically something that uh, is quite difficult to disagree with in the sense that when something is introduced as bio, it is automatically good and environmentally friendly. And if you're looking uh, more deeply into the practices of the forest industry uh, under the umbrella of bioeconomy, then again, many sustainability concerns could be raised. And there is, of course, all, those, all, of course, all this question of how we define the bio or what we include 
as bioeconomy. And for example, the peat industry and lobbyers of peat, the peat industry have been very fond of the idea of including peat under the headline of uh, bioenergy because they perceive it as renewable. And even though the cycle of renewability would extend over thousands of years, but still, as long as you do this certain kind of discursive acrobatics to a certain extent, then you do reach this conclusion. But um, I, I kind of do agree that the dominance of the forest industry, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it kind of um, prevents other actors from taking part and hinders the development of other products that would also be uh, more environmentally sustainable than the products that are being created now. Thanks, Hanna. Um, I don't know if Heike has further comments on this uh, at this point or... or uh... Well, I could still say that the concept of, of bioeconomy, like, like Hanna remarked, is somewhat suspect in many ways. I think it was introduced as, as an answer to the limits of growth discussion. So, so the idea was that uh, relying on something that you called, could call bioeconomy and, and the re renewable resource basis, you could uh, continue, the economic growth could continue ad infinitum. And uh, this idea is problematic in many ways, although I think that the bioeconomy also has rhetoric, rhetorical potential and, and it could could be used in, in, in also in beneficial ways. But so far we have rather little evidence that this would have happened in Finland. Although I must say it is a transnational policy idea and, and it is given different kind of interpretations in different contexts around the world. So, so it, is, it is interesting to see what, what will happen with, with the bioeconomy in different contexts. Yes, yeah, so there are there are different discursive uses and and to use Hanna's uh, word, uh, Hanna's excellent uh, metaphor, discursive acrobatics going around uh, this question of bioeconomy. Um, and as you say, uh, Heikki, uh, there might be also some potential with uh, these types of discursive interventions. There, that might be one way of breaking the deadlocks that we are uh, witnessing. I mean. If I if I were to summarize a little bit what we've been talking about uh, and in terms of deadlocks, so I think there are, in a way there are two two different deadlocks here. One is the deadlock of struggle over, for example, the peat energy question, where you know there there's a feeling on both sides that both sides are are in in the right uh, for 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 different reasons and based on on different understandings of on of sustainability. Um, uh, so there is that kind of deadlock, uh, which is very difficult to break because it is polarized uh, along party lines, along also geographical lines. Uh, so there's, that's a very difficult deadlock to uh, to break. Another deadlock we are seeing with the bioeconomy is the kind of capture of the of the discourse by uh, by the forest industry to some extent by the center party. Um, so that's. Uh, slightly different, but uh, in a way it's also a deadlock. Uh, so in order now to wrap up the, this podcast, uh, I would ask you perhaps to, to think about 
what could be a way out of the deadlocks that you have been uh, describing? Um, so a way that would lead to potentially desirable sustainability outcomes and perhaps to mitigating polarization in, in society. So Hanna, what would you say? Hmm. Mm, I would say that uh, these kind of deadlocks or conflicts of interest in dif between different actors and different levels, they, are, they will not be completely avoidable. They, they are an inevitable part of the process where so many different actors are involved. But so what what then becomes important is the explicitly acknowledging this and also ex explicitly acknowledging that the benefits and losses, especially in the short term, uh, they will be distributed in, in sometimes surprising ways in different communities and between different actors and that these should be this this should be fully acknowledged and also that these losses should be compensated for and another thing relates to the time frame that these transitions or these uh, sustainability policies should be well planned and this planning should take place well in advance and for example in the case of peat this has not happened it you only need to go about 10 years back when peat producers and peat harvesters were still encouraged to make investments and they have and some uh, actors in the society are still lobbying the use of peat and i think there is a lost opportunity for like a just transition and well-planned policies and and so that these kind of the impact if you plan well ahead you if you act proactively and uh, that gives you time to kind of develop the mechanisms to alleviate these uh, inequalities that these policies will inevitably produce. And it also gives you time to engage the ones that are the most affected in the planning of these policies. Uh, this will not lead to a situation where, you know, everybody would be happy and no, there would be no conflict or no tension, but it at least provides some ground or to achieve a outcome that the different parties would be more happy with. Thanks for these excellent suggestions, uh, um, Hanna. Um, yes, I think the one one issue with the perhaps inability until now to to plan these sustainability transitions very well might have to do with the party politics themselves and the strategic mm. uh, and opportunistic. Uh, approaches from from well from many of the parties actually it's not only the populist so-called populist parties that that have those strategies uh, and so these these political dynamics themselves might might make it more difficult but of course in a country like finland where there is this coalition culture and and uh, this way of working together we we can hope that uh, it's possible to actually plan those transitions uh, uh, in a in a better way. Uh, the question of compensation that you mentioned as well, I think, is very important. It's one that, for example, in relation to carbon tax, has been has been mentioned many times. Uh, you know, if you introduce a carbon tax without any compensation to those entrepreneurs who are suffering immediately from this, uh, then of course you have uh, well, in the French context, you have a uh, an upheaval on your hands, uh, the the gilet jaune. So. Um, yes, Heike, what takeaways would you would you have? What suggestions would you have? I think this 
deadlocks are very political in nature and they will be resolved in, in and through political struggle. And uh, what would we need it now? I agree with Hannah, well-planned well planned agendas would, would help a lot. But you would also need to, well, win the people on, on their side. And I think that enhance the legitimacy of sustainability policies, one would need to speak and act in the affirmative more than, more than we do now. The sustainability policies are too strongly associated with regulation and prohibitions, taxes and so on, especially in regions, towns and rural areas that have been experiencing relative decline and the sustainability policies would need to be introduced with some kind of promise of development. And that would mean acting through development policies, investment, investment and infrastructural renewal. And uh, this would practically show that sustainable, sustainable practices are not only necessary, but also attainable and beneficial. And uh, well, if I may comment on the bioeconomy, I don't know if the concept is, is inevitable as such, but uh, working with bioeconomy would require that also other actors would, en would engage with it, with it and try to uh, redefine it, redefine it in a different way than the forest industry has been doing and the vested interests that go with that. So it could be a platform to discuss these things and to bring about change, to bring about meaningful transformation and, and this development policies that I'm I'm hoping for. Yes, so it is not a foregone conclusion that the bioeconomy has to be a tool for the status quo. Uh, it, it can be also a source for affirmative uh, politics and, and a way to to have a development that would be sustainable in, in, in both in urban areas, but also in, in rural areas. And, and of course, that is the that is at the core of the issue that we discussed today. Uh, so thanks uh, to, to both uh, guest speakers. Uh, I learned a lot of things today. Uh, thanks to your expertise on, on these questions, uh, Hanna and Heike. Uh, I hope the listeners as well uh, will, will learn a lot and, uh, and um, understand these issues that, again, I believe are extremely important. Thank you, Hanna and Heike. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you both.